Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I have a lot of very conservative listeners and readers, and this is a podcast that I think a lot of them are not going dis- to, they're going to disagree with, they're not going to like what I have to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. And again, if we go back to my three worlds model, the positive, the neutral, and the negative world, we used to live in a society that was very positive towards Christianity, say in that 1964 to 1994 phase. This is when Christianity's status in society is in decline. What I call the positive world is a period of decline, but at the same time, uh, society is still positive basically towards Christianity. Then from 94 to 2014, we enter what I call the neutral world, where society's no longer positive towards Christianity, but not really neutral either. Christianity is just one more lifestyle choice among many in a pluralistic public square. And then post-2014, we go into what I call the negative world. Very unprecedented for the first time in really the 400-year history of the nation. We have a situation where elite society looks negatively, skeptically towards Christianity. And that's a very new and uncomfortable situation. I also outlined three different strategies, culture war and secret sensitivity, which operated uh, in the positive world. They originated in the positive world, still with us. And then cultural engagement, which uh, really was a product of the neutral world. And there's been a lot of talk, including by myself, about the limits of the cultural engagement model, a.k.a. winsome. And you'll notice I don't use the term winsome all that much. It's not the way that I have tended to think about it. But because that seems to be the most popular word that people use to describe it, I'm going to call it the winsome model in this. And there's been a lot of discussion. Is this as effective today as it was in the past? And the answer is no. Not only has it not been effective, it's now sort of deforming and becoming a little more syncretistic with the world, I would say. And it's interesting that as sort of the winsome model lost its effectiveness, the people who've kind of operated in that winsome model haven't really been able to break out of it. They just can't break out of it because it's very hard. Um, Now, of course, not that they actually live out the winsome model in every circumstance. There was no winsomeness uh, being shown towards James Wood, uh, for example, who who wrote some very mild uh, criticisms of a certain personality and just got attacked for it multiple times, I think, you know, one uh, somewhat infamous uh, New York Times columnist uh, in his personal newsletter ran something like four of them critiquing uh, James Wood. To be honest, it's been disgraceful the way that people have treated James Wood. You know, as I was listening to these eulogies for Tim Keller and all the people talking about how much grace Tim Keller would show to people, even his opponents, I'm like, how many of these Keller kind of acolytes, fanboys who praised his model have shown that kind of grace to James Wood. Not very many, you know, and he's one of the most winsome guys out there. And yet look what happened to him. And so it's really hard, however, to break out of your model because one, your entire following is built on a particular model. So you become captive to your audience and that's always a danger to anyone. And that's one of the reasons I like to do podcasts like this from time to time that challenge my audience because I don't want to have people who follow me, who support me just because I'm telling them what they want to hear. 
just because I'm always saying things they agree with. If you can't handle me disagreeing with you from time to time in what I say through what's hopefully a fair, you know, thoughtful analysis, then that's not the kind of support necessarily that you want because when you get that, it traps you. And so I believe that a lot of the kind of the winsome people ended up getting trapped uh, in their model because their entire follower base now expects a sort of winsome model. And then there's the fact that we all tend to embrace strategies that work with our personalities. It's not just that the winsome people went to winsome school and they, you know, came up with this methodology and they started implementing it. Now, it's probably people who, by their very nature, are people who feel more comfortable in a winsome mode. They're going to gravitate to that. And I would just, you know, be the first person to tell you, you know, kind of by nature, I tend to lend more towards a cultural engagement style. I'm not 100% that way, uh, but I lean that direction. So that undoubtedly colors the way I see the world and everything, maybe including in this podcast. I don't know. So I think it makes it, again, very hard to break out of the winsome mode because that very much goes along with your personality. And by the way, things I just told you are also true of culture war. You know, culture war uh, is also vulnerable to audience capture and culture war people tend to be people whose personalities lend themselves to a kind of culture war style. So it's hard to break out of. And so I think there's been far less talk about culture war and the limits of the culture war model than there have been about cultural engagement. And I think one reason is that the people who don't like culture warring tend not to critique the strategy. They just trash the, they just kind of trash the people who are doing it. They, you're fundamentalist, they're evil, they're bad. And maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it tends to be just viewed as that's bad. And it doesn't go anything beyond that. There's no genuine kind of critique. And again, uh, you don't have to be a, a culture warrior uh, to feel the wrath of people like this. Again, look at James Wood and what happened to him. Again, one of the most winsome guys out there and it did him absolutely no good uh, at some level. So I don't think, you know, there's been a lot of people who've talked about the Winsome model and sort of said, hey, it worked here, didn't work, yeah, it's not working here, we need to change, we need to update. Whereas I think the people who don't like culture warring tend to just much more categorically reject it and don't really engage with it. So I'm going to try to talk about culture warring in the same way that I've talked about um, cultural uh, engagement, same way I've talked about wisdom. So let's talk about the limits of the cultural engagement, or excuse me, the culture war model. And I think the first of them is that the culture war really hasn't worked, you know, for the most part. And if you want to be a culture warrior, then I think you got to ask yourself this. Do you really think you're better at this than Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson? I mean, whatever you think of those guys, they were heavy hitters. They built massive, powerful, wealthy, influential institutions. Influential, certainly, within a certain segment of American society. These guys were serious players. Or you think you're, you think you're going to be a better political operator than Ralph Reed? You think you're going to be better than James Dobson? How do you think you're going to be better than these other guys. What makes you think that you're gonna you're gonna continue uh, something that that failed when that caliber of people was doing it? Why do you think you're better than them? 
And I think that that's almost kind of arrogant to think about. It's like, these guys failed, but we're going to succeed where they didn't. And again, those guys were actually pretty good at what they did and had a lot of success by a lot of conventional means. It uh, just didn't ultimately work. And I think it's easy, especially for young people, to kind of get misled by current events. So I think right now there's a lot of euphoria in certain circles over this Bud Light situation, which, you know, I talked about last week, went through it, and, you know, there has been some success as a conservative boycott on Bud Light, let's be honest. Or, you know, about some of the laws that have passed uh, around some of these states on gender issues. It's like, whoa, look, you know, we're winning. We got to double down. We got to get them on the run, all that stuff. And again, think back a few years. Think back, you know, 15 years or so or however many years it was. 31 states passed constitutional amendments that banned gay marriage. 31 states. They didn't just pass a law. They amended their constitution to prohibit gay marriage. How much effect did that ultimately have? Legally and culturally, the answer is zero. In fact, might have even had a negative impact from the standpoint of people who were promoting that. So, uh, you know, the reality is culture war victories, whenever they have occurred from time to time, have typically been ephemeral. They don't last, they don't stop the arc of cultural change. They don't bend it in a direction that the culture warriors want it. We've seen in the past many, many, many theoretically, theoretical culture war victories that didn't, didn't last. Now, as I've said, there seems to be one exception, and that's abortion. And I think it's interesting about abortion in that abortion uh, was really a result of a sort of a tailored legal strategy involving getting the right judges appointed to the court. And so this is a little different than I think the culture warring. And I don't know if I define culture warring. It's hard to say, but I would say culture warring is essentially an extremely aggressive, extremely provocative, extremely high conflict, uh, extremely oppositional, uh, in your face style of engagement with a culture. And there's some of this with the abortion uh, debate to be sure. And that probably played a role in sustaining kind of the fervor of the anti-abortion movement. So I, I think culture warring played a role, but ultimately culture warring, uh, you know, the success in abortion really came about through a legal strategy. And in that it was really completely dependent on the politically conservative federalist society project, uh, which overlap, which is really distinct from that uh, in a sense. And, but let's just say, let's give it that victory. I'm not here to say that culture warring is a total, total failure, that it's never appropriate, that it never pays any victories. Uh, I actually do think there are probably select circumstances in which it continues to make sense, just as it continues to make sense for Winsome. Uh, but you, know, you, can, you can chalk abortion up as a win. But again, it's early days. We'll see how things ultimately end up playing out for abortion. Um, you know, candidly, if you look at what happened in other places, a lot of these victories have proven ephemeral. But we'll see uh, what happens. Certainly, the uh, repeal of Roe versus Wade is the precondition to anything else. As long as that was a Supreme Court precedent, there was nothing else that could be done. So that was a massive, massive accomplishment. Uh, again, what I think was more a result uh, of a legal strategy more than just pure culture war. And at a minimum, it wasn't just about culture war. There was actually a power strategy 
to acquire legal power over time through judicial appointments to the Supreme Court that would then rule and actually implement the cultural change uh, that people wanted. And, you know, the other thing is that culture war, just as much as wokeness or whatever, is sort of rooted in a mood of resentment. Uh, and James Davison Hunter, I think, pointed that out very aptly in his book, To Change the World, which remains a bunch read. The word actually comes from Nietzsche, I believe, but here's what Hunter says about that. He says, quote, resentment then is expressed as a discourse of negation, the condemnation and denigration of enemies in the effort to subjugate and dominate those who are culpable, unquote. This is very much how the culture war operates. And, uh, you know, again, it's, 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 there's an ironic, I think, parallel to the register of the left, which, uh, you know, Hunter makes a point. This is really kind of a, how American politics has kind of functioned. And, you know, I think as Hunter laid out in his books, you know, evangelicals just really fundamentally misunderstood how cultural change actually happens. And he lays out some theses on cultural change and how it works and why the evangelical strategies didn't work in that book that remained very powerful. You don't have to like his faithful presence strategy. I personally reject faithful presence. I think you know, I've talked about faithful presence otherwise. I don't get dragged into a faithful presence, you know, uh, rabbit hole here. But I'm just saying you don't have to agree with that to think that the analyses that he puts forth in the first two sections of that book are not very powerful. And I do not see that today's culture warriors have really taken stock of what Hunter wrote about that in the book. And he's a very, very smart guy. And I think there's another temptation. We see this not just in the, the conservative Christian world, but definitely in the populist political world or in younger guys. There's this belief that uh, things are going to be different this time because the older generation wasn't committed. They weren't all in. They wanted to conserve something, but we're not here to conserve. We're here to stage a revolution. Yeah, so that's kind of the model. It's like, you know, we're uh, going to succeed where our parents did because we're going to be more serious, more hardcore, more all in, totally relentless, less boomer, etc. I see that attitude all the time. And I think it, it pervades a lot of the whole kind of new right discourse as well. Well, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, who said this? Quote, we are no longer working to preserve the status quo. We are radicals working to overthrow the power structure of this country. Unquote. Who said that? Anybody who said that? That was Richard Vigory from 1982. Richard Vigory was one of the architects of the New Right movement, the original New Right movement. Now, it may not have been the first movement ever called the New Right, but in terms of all the different movements called the New Right, this is the most famous one. If people talk about the New Right, they often are talking about this. It started in the 70s, it's been in the 80s, and there's a reason, because it was powerful and very, very, very influential. And as you can see, they did the whole shtick we're not here to conserve anything. We're here to, you know, this. We're going to be tougher than these old Buckleyite guys, right? Uh, you know, go read the book Post-Conservative America by Kevin Phillips. I've had a lot of people just haven't done any reading whatsoever 
about conservatism past. When you read this stuff and you realize, like, wait a minute, this is an identical replay uh, of the past. Like, what's going on? I've, I've talked a lot uh, about early 90s populism. I mean, everything that happened in early 90s populism is kind of just like being replayed now. And in fact, many people talked about that, how Trump was sort of recapitulating the Pat Buchanan agenda, things of that nature. And oh, by the way, the intellectuals who were writing in the early 90s, you know, like Christopher Lash, Arthur Schlesinger, all those guys, Kevin Phillips, another one, they're far superior to the vast majority of today's populist, new right type intellectuals. I mean, they laid it all out a long time ago. So this idea that like, oh, this has never really been tried. We're just going to do it for real this time. Like that has happened multiple times before in the past. You are just saying the exact same things that the people who created Jerry Falwell were saying. Jerry Falwell was part of that new right movement. Okay. Jerry Falwell, moral majority came out of that. This was not a guy who was trying to play nice with the status quo. Okay. These were guys that were as motivated as you were. And oh, by the way, they were like hyper-talented. You know, Richard Vigory was top-notch. And you think you're better than them? I think there's like a naivete around some of this stuff. And so I think for these reasons, like people who want to pursue culture war need to take a step back and take, a stop, and take stock and just say, didn't work in the past. Even the victories we thought we made in the past ultimately got swept away. Do we really understand how culture changes as documented by people like James Davis and Hunter? And have we taken stock of the historical patterns of this sort of thing to see how we're similar or different? I don't think that's been done. I think it's just been a reflexive continuation of kind of the culture war mode of let's just go own the libs, take them on, rhetorically fight it out on Twitter, etc. Another challenge of the culture war style is it eventually consumes you know, kind of consumes and dominates your life in the way that you engage with everything. And we see this in the way that people didn't wait five minutes after Tim Keller was dead to start dumping criticisms on him. I mean, that is a massive violation of the social norms of this country. And these are the American patriots types who are doing this. Well, if this is America, we want to live by American culture. You know, American culture says you shouldn't speak ill of the dead. Maybe there are other cultures where that's, you know, accepted, but like, that is like such an unbelievable, massive turnoff to normies. And yes, as I've said before, you know, people are able to violate that and that's a norm that's on the way out. Uh, but right now, for the most part, the people who are able to violate it are the people on the left who are going to have all the validating institutions of society and the media are going to say, yes, this is the position that should be taken. This is going to be the high status position. You're not going to be able to do that. And it's, it's totally unnecessary. I mean, is it really necessary to do that? I don't think so. And again, playing nice doesn't necessarily get you any friends. Okay. James Wood had a very nice, totally positive obituary of Tim Keller. Nobody's going to be treating James Wood nice because James Wood is perceived as a threat to them. So I'm not saying this is necessarily going to earn you friends among the leadership of the, uh, you know, of the uh, uh, kind of uh, cultural engagement tribe, but it does, like, this is something that affects the quote unquote normies, right? And you think about it, it's not only that, it's counterproductive, okay? 
if you're trying to convince someone that there are actually limitations or problems, right, of, of Tim Keller's ministry, like dumping on the guy right after he died is not a productive way to do that. In fact, it's very counterproductive. And it often, this style actually ends up helping sometimes the people that you're trying to undermine. And don't just take my word for it. Take Peter Thiel's word for it. Go back and read my newsletter number 71, which is called Why You Shouldn't Play the Heel or something like that. It's available in the podcast feed in audio edition if you want to listen to it in audio. And I have a video. Uh, I didn't play the video uh, in, in the audio feed, but you can go find it. It's Peter Thiel recently talking at Stanford, and he, re he recounts this story about how when he was at Stanford as an undergrad and he created the, the Stanford Review, this sort of libertarian publication, and they'd done this big uh, expose and attack on someone named Rigoberta Menchu. Now, Rigoberta Menchu, uh, she, she was from Central America. She was like an Indian, and she wrote this highly embellished memoir that kind of became a bestseller, and ultimately she ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I believe. And, and Teal talked about driving down the road, listening to the, the news on its way to work when the news came over the radio that Rigoberta Menchu had won the Nobel Peace Prize. Here's what Peter Teal had to say. Quote, the scales fell off my eyes at that point. I had thought I was fighting in some sort of cosmic struggle between the forces of good and evil and what I had really been doing is that I was just some two-bit actor in a left-wing psychodrama where I completed her victimization. The one group she had not been victimized by were white conservative Republicans in the United States. I completed her victimization and guaranteed her Nobel Peace Prize, unquote. You know, and so as I laid out in that piece, there's a script already written. Uh, and it's got a role, starring role, for a villain. And you can fill the starring role with villain if you want. In fact, you can have a great career playing the bad guy. There's a lot of actors who sort of had a great career playing the bad guy. But it also limits you, right? And you're not going to be as popular as Tom Cruise. Right? And, you know, your position's not going to be as popular as Tom Cruise. And it's an exclusively negative form of engagement. It's so little about what you're for and so much about what you're against. But this sort of culture warring, you know, ultimately sometimes actually ends up being counterproductive. And I'm not arguing in any way, shape, or form that, you know, the backlash, you know, against this culture war is what causes this stuff. I don't, I don't believe that. They're doing what they're doing because that's what they're going to do and that's what they want to do. Uh, but in many cases, you know, it can help people. You know, if you're one of these cultural engagement leaders, getting some like hardcore attacks from fundamentalists actually burnishes their cred with the people that they actually care about. Maybe it burnishes their cred, you know, with their funders. It helps them. You know, there's a reason David French got promoted to columnist at the New York Times. And in part, it was because of how he got under the skin of so many people on the right, so many conservative Christians that he was able to just, you know, fire them up. Hey, I'm one, so I'm guilty, okay, on that one. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm perfect by any means. I'm not here to say, you know, you got to do it the Aaron Wren way. Not by any means. But I think we have to be aware of this, uh, cognizant with this. And so I think there's a lot of things that say we need to rethink cultural engagement. And I think there's a vigor, there is a place for very 
vigorous fighting. Let me give an example. The upcoming debate, the current debate, over whether there should be female pastors allowed in the SBC. One, that's an internal to evangelicalism debate, not an external culture-focused issue. It's also critical to the future of the SBC as an institution, right? What's the Southern Baptist going to be? So that's one you want to fight. That's one you want to go to the mat for. Uh, some of this other stuff, I'd say not. And again, I think there's absolutely 100% a place for culture warring, just as I think there's a place for winsome. But in a negative world, okay, we need to update the formulas. Right? We need to update the formulas. It's not easy, but it has to be done. And again, I think the problem is that when your natural style is culture war, you're always going to be pulled in and start drifting that direction. Okay? And, you know, therefore, sometimes you have to, like, really worry about, am I going too far this direction? Do I need to lean into the wind a little bit? Right? Do I need to, like, make sure I'm staying, like, on track and I'm keeping that part of it in its place? And one way, for example, to do that, I think, is you got to resist the urge to just weigh in on every single controversy that happens every single day. And that's just, you know, I've talked a lot about Nassim Taleb. What would Nassim Taleb tell you? Don't read the news. The news is like irrelevant. You know, you can only get, you know, distracted by the news. You're not really learning anything. And hey, I read the news. I love the news. It's part of my job. So I'm, I'm not saying that I don't read the news. But you know what? There's a lot of things going on in the news that I could be outraged about that I don't say a word about. Because I don't think they're on mission for me. I want to pick my battles. And so that's one. Think about, hey, can I pick my battles instead of just responding to every outrage cycle? But again, I think we spent a lot of time talking about the limits of winsome. A very important conversation to be had. I think we, we can see that the winsome strategy is not what it once was. Actually taking some people in a bad direction right now. But we have to have the courage to also rethink the culture war model and just have an honest evaluation of its track record and what it has produced. And again, grapple seriously with what people like James Davis and Hunter said, what's happened in the past, all these people. And I think realistically in a negative world, culture warring as traditionally understood needs a rethink. Doesn't mean that needs to be completely abandoned any more than I would tell somebody who's like a net. I wouldn't tell James Wood become some firebrand. He's a naturally winsome guy. But you look at what he's trying to do. He's updating his formulas for negative world. Trying to have more clarity, whatever. So what what he did as a you know a cultural engagement guy by nature, personality, is going to be different than what someone who comes from a, a culture war perspective might have. You know, I'm not I'm not saying it's gonna look identical. It's not gonna look like me. You know, and there's some people, right? There probably are some people who are suited to more culture war, you know, orientation. And there probably does need to be some amount of culture war being done at some point. I'm not saying that's point. It's point's not that it's all bad, but that it's become all consuming. And there's too much of it done in the old style, maybe with just new mediums. And I think we need to think a little bit more about that model. Uh, because if we spend double down too much on that and we neglect the other things, like again, what was the other thing that went on with abortion? The legal strategy, the power you know, strategy, all of that stuff uh, doesn't really lead anywhere, uh, in my opinion. This is my unpopular opinion. So that would be my challenge to the people who like to 
operate in the culture war more mode. And I think I'm gonna have a newsletter out next week if I get it written this week. And so we'll probably have a, another sort of regular podcast in a couple of weeks, audio version of the newsletter next week, and I will talk to you later.